Let's turn in God's word to 1 Kings in chapter 14, page 317, page 317 in the Church Bible. We're going to read the first 20 verses, which conclude the life of Jeroboam, the first king of the ten tribes of Israel. Verse 1, chapter 14, let's hear God's inspired and infallible word. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Please arise and disguise yourself, that they may not recognize you as the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Indeed, Ahijah the prophet is there, who told me that I would be king over this people. Also take with you ten loaves, some cakes and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what will become of the child. Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. But Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were glazed by reason of his age. Now the Lord had said to Ahijah, Here is the wife of Jeroboam coming to ask you something about her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her, for it will be, when she comes in, that she will pretend to be another woman. And so it was, when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps, as she came through the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam, why do you pretend to be another person? For I have been sent to you with bad news. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I have exalted you from among the people and made you ruler over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been as my servant David who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only what was right in my eyes but you have done more evil than all who were before you. For you have gone and made for yourself other gods and moulded images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel, bond and free. I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as one takes away refuse until it is all gone. The dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city. And the birds of the air shall eat whatever dies in the field. For the Lord has spoken. Arise therefore, go to your own house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him for he is the only one of Jeroboam who shall, not, who shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something good toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam. This is the day. What? Even now? For the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers and will scatter them beyond the river because they made their wooden images 
provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, who sinned and who made Israel sin. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Terzah. When she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. And they buried him. And all Israel mourned for him according to the word of the Lord which he spoke through his servant Ahijah the prophet. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he made war and how he reigned, indeed they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. The period that Jeroboam reigned was twenty-two years. So he rested with his fathers. Then Nadab his son reigned in his place. Let's pray. Lord, we are aware that a passage like this is written for our admonition. We upon whom the end of the ages has come. And Lord, we pray that we may learn by your Holy Spirit the important lessons from the life and from the last days of the house of Jeroboam. Lord, guide us now by your Holy Spirit. Teach us, lead us unto Christ, and to see in him that all-sufficient Saviour. For Lord, we acknowledge that we, if we were left to ourselves, would be too much like Jeroboam. Lord, have mercy upon us then, and teach us now, we pray. For Christ's sake. Amen. If you take a decent newspaper and turn to the pages where the obituaries are recorded, when you read an obituary of someone who is reasonably well known, you usually find recorded there all the significant events in their lifetime and their achievements. Verses 19 and 20 is God's obituary concerning Jeroboam. He reigned for 22 years as king. But scripture gives us three terse phrases. And even those phrases don't tell us a great deal about Jeroboam and his achievements. If you want to read, it says, the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, what he did during his lifetime. If you want to read, secondly, about how he made war, and thirdly, how he reigned, we're not going to tell you. You'll have to go and look in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Why such scant regard? for the achievements of a 22-year reign. We might say, well, it would have made interesting reading to know about what else he did and how he made war and so on and so forth. What we do have, though, in the Scriptures are three chapters or parts of chapters of Scripture that record for us Jeroboam's worship. That is what we need to know about this man. And we know that his worship was a false worship. 
He had set up golden bulls, golden calves at Bethel and Dan and appointed priests and sacrifices and days of worship and feasts which God had not appointed. And as far as the Spirit of God who inspired this man to write these things, we don't know the name of the author of 1 Kings, but as far as the Spirit of God is concerned, what matters is not the wars of Jeroboam, not the rest of his acts and how he reigned. What matters is how did this man respond to the word of God? How did he worship God? How did he regard the commandments of God? And now here in chapter 14, in the first 18 verses, most of it is taken up with a prolonged word of judgment from the prophet Ahijah. And the devastating consequences for Jeroboam's house and for Israel. It is a word of divine judgment upon this man and upon his kingdom. That word dominates this entire section of chapter 14. That is what the writer wants us to know and to understand about this man. All his other achievements are really of no consequence. What matters about this man and what matters about us ultimately is what we do with the commandments of God and whether we serve and worship him and him alone. There are three things that I want us to look at from this section. First of all, we want to see how God exposes the pretense of Jeroboam. And then secondly, we want to see how God confronts the sinful deeds of Jeroboam. And then thirdly, how God pronounces disaster on the house of Jeroboam. And then we will draw out some of the key lessons for ourselves. But first of all, let us see how God exposes the pretense of Jeroboam. We read at the beginning of the chapter that Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. There is a royal panic in the palace in Terzah. It seems that Abijah is seriously ill. Now that is a natural concern for a parent, parental compassion for a son who is very ill, very sick, but also because Jeroboam is king, there's also the concerns of a male heir to succeed him when he dies. A lot is at stake because Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, is sick. But there is a further dilemma for Jeroboam and for his wife, but for Jeroboam in particular. He dare not send to Shiloh for Ahijah. And he dare not, scarcely dare not go himself to see Ahijah. This was the prophet, yes, who told him, Jeroboam, you are going to be king over the ten tribes. You remember how Ahijah torn that new cloak into twelve pieces and given Jeroboam ten of those pieces and said that he would become king over the ten tribes. But he can scarcely go himself. 
the swift king. Why? Well, because the prophet warned him about going down the path that he had actually taken. And he knew if he went to Ahijah, that Ahijah was hardly going to give him any praise, hardly going to be complimentary to him, would not hear him with regard then to his son. So, his plan unfolds. He will send Mrs. Jeroboam instead. But not in a recognisable form. Because the same thing will happen to her which would happen if Jeroboam himself went in person. So, go in disguise, dear. Dress up. Go in disguise so that he will not recognise you. And take some gifts. But don't be too lavish because otherwise you might suspect where you come from. The disguise turns out to be a complete waste of time. On the one hand, Ahijah's blind anyway. He's got cataracts or some other problem as a result of old age. He wouldn't recognise who it was anyway unless he recognised the voice. So it's a waste of time on that front. But it's also a waste of time and a wasted effort because Jeroboam was a fool if he thought that he could deceive the Lord by this kind of pretense. The Lord knew exactly what was going on in that palace in Terza. The Lord was several steps ahead of Jeroboam and his wife. We read quite clearly in verse 5, The Lord had said to Ahijah, Here is the wife of Jeroboam coming to ask you something about her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her, for it will be when she comes in that she will pretend to be another woman. And at that point in the narrative we have no idea what is coming. We might suspect that some severe message is coming, but we are given no indication by the writer. But what a shock it must have been for that woman as she came to Shiloh, found the house where Ahijah was living, this blind old prophet, And in she walks, and the first thing she hears is, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. And before she can get over that shock, he gives her another blow. I have bad news for you. I have heavy news for you. I have a message of judgment. Now at that point she might have thought, well that means my son is going to die. But it's far more serious than that. The pretense has been exposed. God exposes the pretense of Jeroboam and the plan he had with his wife. His cover and her cover is blown. And then there's a totally unexpected blast of judgment shaking her to the core. Perhaps because Jeroboam becomes so hardened in his sin he had forgotten that when you deal with a real prophet of God you have to come face to face with the living God. Does does Jeroboam think that he can manipulate this situation? God knows everything. He exposes pretense. The motives of our hearts are known utterly and completely by him. Do you remember those words of the writer to the Hebrews? In verse 12 of chapter 4, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It is one of the marks of ungodliness that men say if there is a God, he doesn't see. If there is a God, he doesn't take anything into account. You read those sorts of responses in the Psalms in other parts of the scripture. And that is something of the spirit of Jeroboam. It is as he's in His sin has so blinded him that he thinks somehow he is going to get away with this. But his cover is completely blown. God shatters his dreams. And you have here something of a farce. Here is a king and his wife. And they're in panic. They're in a fix. And they send to a man who they think will be able to help them out of that fix. The way they responded is not strange. It's very common. Why do people in our day and age do similar things when they face a personal crisis? What do they do? They will seek out some kind of religious person They want help, even though they've had nothing to do with religion before, perhaps. Or they've despised it and turned their back upon it. Now suddenly they are faced with a life-threatening situation. They don't want God to rule over their lives. There's no recognition of their real need of sinners before a God, but they want help because they're facing an emergency and they've got no ability to do anything about it. That's a very common attitude. But God, you see, here is not fooled. God is not mocked. We are told concerning our Lord Jesus Christ that he knew all men. There was no need that anyone should testify to him of men. He knew what was in a man. John chapter 2 verses 24 and 25. And the fact of the matter is, you see, that as God exposes the pretense of Jeroboam and his wife, we recognise that it is folly on the part of this man and his wife to come to God to seek for his aid when they have turned away from him the rest of their lives. God is worthy of our worship all of the time. He is worthy of our hearts and our minds. It is right to call upon him in trouble. But if that is the only time we ever address God, then we have to say we are not serious in seeking and serving Him. Our religion would be a mockery if we only sought Him in times of trouble. We don't deceive God. We may deceive others. We may even try and deceive ourselves. But we cannot deceive God. The Bible tells us the man is blessed. That person is blessed who fears the Lord, who delights in the law of the Lord day and night. The man, the woman who loves the law of God constantly and seeks God's face constantly. 
Jeroboam is not such a man. He has forsaken God. He has forsaken the law of God. He is as stubborn as a mule. He has effectively played the religious harlot. He is joined to idols. And God is not fooled. He is not at our beck and call. And he is not at Jeroboam's beck and call. There can be no blessing on Jeroboam. The day Jeroboam's wife walks into the presence of Ahijah, it is as if God says to them, the game is up. I know everything. You cannot deceive me. But God does not leave it there. Having exposed the pretense of Jeroboam, we find secondly that now God confronts the sinful deeds of Jeroboam. We say, is this just? Why should the Lord come down so hard upon this man? With this message of divine judgment. We read in verse 6, Ahijah says, I have been sent to you with bad news. Confirming the message of the man of God who perished at the hands of, or the at the power of the lion. But now the implications are spelled out. Jeroboam's religious innovations, these bulls that he made, and all the worship that he established in the high places, all of that is now going to be the object of God's judgment. What Jeroboam has sown, he is going to reap. And God confronts Jeroboam with his guilt and what he has done. And as we listen to the indictment against Jeroboam given to his wife, we can only conclude that God is absolutely just. Listen to what God says in verses 7 to 9. The prophet says, go and tell Jeroboam, go and tell your husband, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. And then you hear, Because I have exalted you from among the people and made you ruler over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, yet you have not been as my servant David who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart. To do only what was right in my eyes. We begin to realise that God himself. God's anger has been aroused by Jeroboam's religious innovations. Note carefully the wording. First of all God emphasises. I have been kind to you Jeroboam. I exalted you Jeroboam. I made you king over Israel, Jeroboam. I took the ten tribes away from Rehoboam and his father Solomon and I gave them to you and I gave you promises that if you will be faithful to me then I would establish you and your house. But what have you done, Jeroboam? You have refused to keep my commandments. David should have been your model. David should have been your pattern. 
David was a man who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only what was right in my eyes. But you have not done that, Jeroboam. You've done the precise opposite of that. Indeed, you've outsinned everybody else before you. You've done more evil, verse 9, than all who were before you. You've gone and made for yourself. You weren't concerned about me, you were only concerned about yourself. You've made for yourself other gods and moulded images. And you've provoked me to anger. But the main thing is, the principal thing is, you've cast me behind your back. And the emphasis in the original way in which it is put is, me you have cast behind your back. Jeroboam's sin then is clearly exposed. You've made for yourself other gods. You've carved metal images. You've provoked me to anger. You have no time for me whatsoever. It's as if I don't exist. My word means absolutely nothing to you at all. You cast me behind your back. And God is angry. And is he not justly angry? Has not Jeroboam sinned against God? Has he brought the wrath of God down upon his own head? Has God been kind to him? And what has Jeroboam done? Thrown it back in his face with contempt. God is angry. He's like a husband whose wife has been unfaithful to him. And there is justified anger. And there is justified jealousy. God is angry because this man, who he has appointed king over his people, over these ten tribes, this man has turned away and introduced idols. God's love has been spurned. God's love has been rejected. He was the one who redeemed them. These are the people whom he brought out of Egypt. These are the people whom he purchased as his own people. These are the people whom he's brought into the land of Canaan. And Jeroboam has departed from God. He has apostatized. He has effectively the spirit of harlotry in his own heart. He has strayed playing the harlot against God. And the damning sin is that he has cast God behind his back. His word means absolutely nothing to Jeroboam. What is your response to that? Many people today respond angrily to God's dealings with Jeroboam. And God's implied dealings with them. They say something like this. Who is this intolerable God who demands to be worshipped in this kind of way? Why does he make such unreasonable demands upon his creatures? Why does he take it personally? What's wrong with God? What's his problem? How dare he impose himself in this way upon his so-called creatures? What right has he to tell me what I should do and how I should live? That's how a great number of people respond with varying degrees of anger. But who is this God? He is the God who has made us. He is the God who gives to all men life and breath and everything else. And yet men and women live as if he does not exist. They refuse to give him thanks. God has been kind 
and yet God has been refused. This is the God who has sent his only begotten Son into the world. And yet men have turned their backs upon Christ. This is the blinding power of sin. Men and women want to live their own lives their own way. They don't want God interfering in their lives. It does not alter the underlying facts that God is the creator of all men. And he owe, men and women owe him thanks. It does not alter the fact that God has sent his only begotten son into the world. And if men and women refuse the son of his love, there is a price to be paid. Jeroboam and his wife are now confronted with what they have done and what Jeroboam has done in particular. They came, they were concerned about their son. But you see, God was concerned about their sin. And Jeroboam's sin in particular. Up to this point, Ahijah said nothing about Abijah, their sixth son. The Lord is concerned, you see, with Jeroboam's worship. False worship. This is something you made for yourself. Me you cast behind your back. Jeroboam, that is serious. And I am now calling you to account for your life. Jeroboam is set in his ways. There is no evidence anywhere in these three chapters of any repentance he remained unmoved by all the events Ahijah the man of God and there is no sign of repentance here in his response is it then any wonder that we read thirdly of how God pronounces disaster on Jeroboam. And we have to conclude this is a just judgment. The warnings have been given. Ahijah told him the reason why the ten tribes were lost to the house of David and Solomon was because Solomon forsook God and served other idols. Chapter 11 verse 33 The kingdom will be taken out of his son's hands and given to you because, verse 38 tells us because of Solomon's sins and verse 38 tells us that if you heed Jeroboam all that I command you I will give you an enduring house the same kind of house as I built for David But all of that was water off a duck's back. Jeroboam paid no heed. And now we have a threefold disaster pronounced by the word of the prophet. The death of a son, the death of a dynasty, and the death of a nation. There is, first of all, an immediate disaster. The death of a son. It is recorded in verse 12 and 13. Before Mrs. Jeroboam leaves, she is told, Arise therefore, go to your own house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. 
And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he is the only one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something good toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. She will never set eyes upon him alive again. The moment she crosses the threshold, her son will die. And that is also a sign of the future disasters that will happen. Because we read that this is precisely what took place. In verse 10, God has pronounced the thing in a general way. He will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel, bond and free. The verse 12 and 13 is specific. But God is not unjust. You see, he recognises there was some good in Jeroboam's son. Some good towards God. He displayed something of genuine piety. And he will be, unlike the others, he will actually die and be buried, unlike the others. For there is an imminent disaster. And that is the death of the dynasty. The removal of the house of Jeroboam. We read again in verse 10 that the whole house will perish. I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel bond and free. I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as one takes away refuse until it is all gone. And that word refuse means done, excrement. It's a sign of uncleanness. This is uncleanness and it has no place in my sight. And then those who remain at the house of Jeroboam will be treated as cursed. They will not be buried. They will be eaten. In the city eaten by dogs, in the fields by birds of prey. There will be no enduring house for you, Jeroboam. The thing which I promised you because you've been unfaithful, I will take from you and I will cut off your house. I will bring disaster. If you turn to verse 14, it says, The moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam. This is the day. What? Even now. And if you read on into the next chapter, chapter 15 and 29, within two years of Jeroboam's death, Basha killed Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, and became king, and wiped out in its entirety the house of Jeroboam, according to the word of Ahijah. First stage, the death of the son, the moment Mrs. Jeroboam crossed the threshold of the city of Tirsa. The imminent disaster is the death of the entire dynasty. But the long-term disaster is the death of a nation. Verse 15, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. And we read on in that those verses to read of the destabilizing of the kingdom of Israel and the giving up of the nation of Israel. Verse 16, he will give Israel up 
because of the sins of Jeroboam who sinned and who made Israel sin. They will be cast into exile at the hand of the nation of Assyria. That is a longer term thing. You read of it in 2 Kings chapter 17 verses 21 to 23. 200 years of Israel's history. Jeroboam became king in 933. Israel was taken captive and taken into exile in 722. And during that time 20 different kings, different dynasties. They were as a reed shaken in the water by the wind. He stabilized God will do it. Look at the verbs that describe the action of God in verses 15 and 16. The Lord will strike Israel. He will uproot Israel. He will scatter them beyond the river. They provoke the Lord to anger. He will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam. Because of the sins of Jeroboam who sinned and made Israel to sin. The whole nation is damned and the whole nation is ultimately destroyed by the actions of this king. You're going to read that as you read through 1 and 2 Kings again and again. One commentator likens it to a commercial jingle that you hear on the radio and it gets into your head and you find yourself recalling it and even singing it to yourself. You can't get rid of it. You see, the Spirit of God will not let us forget this man and his sin. We read of it again and again. Why? Because we can never safely ignore the example, the bad example of Jeroboam. We can never safely ignore his sin. We can never think lightly of casting God behind our backs. We can never regard God's words as mere empty threats. You see, there is a tendency for us to suppress these things, to forget these things. And say, oh, well, maybe that's Old Testament. But you see, again and again, the serious reader of the Word of God comes back again and again and again and again. Jeroboam, who sinned and who made Israel sin. God says, I do not want my people to forget this man and what he did. I do not want you to forget my judgments upon this man. This explains what has happened in history. This explains the exile. And you remember how it all began? It began with the man's fear and distrust of God. That's what led to his disobedience. We read of it in chapter 12 and verse 26. You remember the fear that came into his heart? When the kingdom became his, he began to think to himself, ah, but the kingdom might return to David and to Rehoboam. He did not believe Ahijah's word. He said the people will go up to Jerusalem and they'll return to Rehoboam. I must do something about this to prevent this. I know what I'll do. I'll build golden calves in Bethel and Dan. That will become the place of worship. That will become the place of pilgrimage. People won't have to go up to Jerusalem anymore. You see, he didn't trust 
in God. He didn't believe what Ahijah said to him in the name of the Lord. He did not obey God and his aspirations are now dashed into a thousand pieces. Any flashes of conscience that he may have had in those years have come to nothing. And all his other achievements, however great a military leader he may have been, count for nothing in the eyes of God. This is a very sad state of affairs. Here is a man who has constantly put the word of God behind his back. This is the man who has consistently disobeyed the Lord and not paid heed to his warnings. This is the man who has brought the judgment of God down upon his own head. This is the man who has provoked God to anger. This is the man who has brought disaster upon himself and upon his house and upon the entire nation. Brothers and sisters, these things are written for our learning. Israel, remember, in the wilderness built golden calves. Exodus chapter 32. It's not the first time we've seen bulls and idolatry. The passages like 1 Kings 12, 13 and 14 are also written for our admonition. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul speaks there about the old covenant people of God making those idols, having Aaron make those golden calves. And if that was written for our learning, then this is also written for our learning. We shouldn't think, oh, this is just ancient history. This is of no particular relevance to us. This is the Spirit of God. He is the author of Scripture. And he wants to make sure that we do not imitate this man Jeroboam and cast God's own words behind our backs. You see, we stand before God as we seek to work out what are the practical implications of all this for us we remind ourselves, we stand before the same God. We can't pretend. We can't deceive. We can't disguise our motives and our hearts. And we have to ask ourselves, if God was to write your obituary, what would he say of you? Would it be a list of Achievements that you've made? You see, what is God ultimately concerned about? He is concerned about your heart. And He is concerned about your heart attitude to Him and how you serve Him and whether you have worshipped Him. Will the Lord be able to say of you as He said of His servant David, He followed me with all His heart and did what was right in my eyes. Or you say, but I'm, I, I'm far from perfect. I'm not asking you if you are perfect. God is not asking you if you are perfect. God is asking you, do you have a sincere and genuine heart? Have you trusted in my grace and in my promises? And have you set yourself, as David set himself, to follow me with all of your heart? Just because you profess to be a Christian, 
does not mean that you will automatically follow wholeheartedly after the Lord. There are many pressures. There are many temptations to compromise in this world. To be half-hearted. We live in the dance. When the Messiah has come, Jesus Christ has come into the world. We live at the time of the end of the ages, says Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And that makes no difference to most people who live here in Maidenvale and in Crawley. It makes very little difference to the people you live next door to and work with. People today are impatient with Bible-believing Christians who take the Bible seriously and are serious about pleasing God and purity of worship, serious about following after Christ. Because they have followed Christ who says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You make my word your guide, your rule, and you delight in that. And people are impatient with people like us. They're not happy with the idea of a God who says, I'm not going to change the first commandment or any of the other nine commandments. You will worship me. I am the God who has made you and everything else in this world. And you live your lives as if I do not exist. God is not going to change his rules. God is not going to change his laws. God is not going to change his gospel. And men and women cast contempt upon us. And reproach us. And they come with their opinion to us. You tell us we can't do what we want to do? Well, we're not obliged to stick with your God and the God of the Bible. We're free to do as we please, they say. You serve God your way, we'll serve God our way. What are you going to tell them? Jeroboam? Let me tell you about Jeroboam. You probably know nothing about Jeroboam. Let me tell you about Jeroboam, you say to this person. He felt no obligation to do it God's way. He made for himself other gods and moulded images. And what happened? He damned himself. He damned his whole house. And he damned a whole nation. He brought the judgment of God down upon himself. And generations of men and women. 200 years. You may still receive reproach and scoff and scorn and contempt. But that's the spirit of the age in which we live, isn't it? That's how it is with many people with whom we rub shoulders. How do we respond to that? There are two searching questions. First of all, are you willing to continue to bear witness to the one true and living God, the Sovereign Lord who is our Creator and our Redeemer in Jesus Christ, there is a choice to be made. And it will determine what God will write in your obituary. Are you going to bear witness, despite the reproach and despite the contempt, are you going to bear witness to this God and to His Gospel? And to bear reproach in this ungodly age. To offend men and women with the truth of the gospel. And warn them 
with love in your hearts, but with a zeal for the honour and glory of the God whom you serve. When Paul stood on Mars Hill, when Paul stood before the Areopagus, he called men and women in the name of Christ to repent of their sins. He called the proud Athenians to bow the knee to Jesus Christ and told them that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through the man whom he has appointed, whom he has raised from the dead, even Jesus Christ. And that was his message. He stood before Festus, he stood before Felix, he said the same basic thing. He reasoned with men, he sought to persuade men. Why? Because men refused to acknowledge the God who in grace had called him to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. In the present climate, first of all, are you willing to bear witness to your God who demands total allegiance? Because that raises the second question then. Are you going to be a wholehearted worshipper of this one true living God. Not the kind of worshipper who only worships God or only serves God when you need him. Not the kind of worshipper who gives the second sort of best, the minimum kind of worship when it's convenient, a kind of complacency, kind of second best, the kind of service that is selective but not wholehearted, that puts certain sections of God's word behind your back, words that address you in your sin, perhaps your secret sins, or sermons that address you and say, well, I, I that applies to me. You're putting the word of God behind your back and that is the most dangerous thing you could ever do. Remember Jeroboam. Don't ignore your sin. Don't ignore your duties. Don't ignore the gospel of Christ. Don't grow cold in your love toward him. Don't give your allegiance to anybody else but unto Jesus Christ. You say, well how can I serve God? How can I follow this God with all of my heart? You can't pretend. You can't make it happen by pretending. But how can you be genuine? How can you be sincere? Let me give you a number of pieces of counsel. First of all, realize that if you were left to yourself, as Jeroboam was left, then the same kind of thing would happen to you. You left to yourself in your sin, you are utterly unable to satisfy the law of Christ, the law of God. You are utterly unable to please him. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It cannot please him. Left to ourselves, we would perish. It is the amazing love and grace of God that flows to us in Jesus Christ. Sin brings death. Sin brings destruction. Sin brings hell. 
We're unable to save ourselves, but here is the grace of God that flows to us in Jesus Christ. Instead of divine anger, instead of divine punishment, God will not render now to each man according to his deeds. Because if you are a Christian, God has laid your sins upon his own Son, Jesus Christ. And by his stripes you have been healed from your sins. You have been washed, you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And there is no condemnation, there is no more anger, there is no threat of punishment. You see then the riches of God's goodness, God's forbearance, God's long-suffering presented to you in Jesus Christ leads you to repentance. You've been brought to that point, perhaps it was many years ago, you were brought to the point of repentance, you were brought to the point of faith in Jesus Christ. And you can only follow God with all of your heart as the grace of God oozes out of you as it were having gripped your minds and your hearts and your consciences is because of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ and what you owe to him and the realisation of what you owe to him that will allow you to stand boldly and serve him and contradict even in mercy perhaps but also in judgment those who decry against you because you serve a God who to them is totally intolerant. It's because of Christ. Because of Christ. Let me close with those words of the Apostle Paul in Romans and chapter 12. He says there in verse 1, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, And when he uses that phrase, the mercies of God, he is thinking of all that has gone before in the previous 11 chapters. The mercies of God that have come to us when we were in our sin, when we were unthankful, when we were unbelieving, when we were ungodly, when we were still under the curse of the law. And then the mercies of God that flow to us in Jesus Christ who has made a propitiation for us and we were counted righteous in his sight because of the righteousness of Christ and the obedience of Christ. That obedience that led to his death on the cross. That obedience, that righteousness has been put to our account. And our sins have been forgiven. And then that grace of sanctification. Joined to Christ. Not only has Christ died for us. But we have died to sin. And we have now been made alive with Jesus Christ. And live in newness of life. And we have the hope of glory set before us. We are heirs of God. Joined heirs with Jesus Christ. And there is the day coming when our bodies will be resurrected and we shall receive the adoption that is ours. And then those great chapters 9, 10, 11 that deal with God's electing love. These are some of the mercies. He said, I beseech you by these mercies that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. May God, by his grace, enable us so to do. And may he receive all the glory through his Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Lord, we magnify the grace that has been so freely bestowed upon us in your Son, Jesus Christ. As we have considered the life and the example of Jeroboam, our hearts have trembled as we have seen a man who put your word constantly behind his back and counted it as nothing. Lord, deliver us from such an attitude. Have mercy upon us and forgive us. Blot out all our transgressions, all our sins, for the sake of Christ. And grant that with a renewed appreciation of your mercies toward us, in saving us from our sins, we may live unto you, offering ourselves, our bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you, our reasonable service. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.